Be seated. What must I do to be saved? What a question. Wouldn't you like to be asked that today if you're a believer here? What an open door. Saul, the Pharisee, the persecutor of Christianity, the one who would have nothing to do with the claims that Jesus Christ was making. By God's grace on the Damascus Road, became a believer. He became a true Christian. We use that term so loosely in the United States of America, so much so that if anybody's born in the United States of America, they think they're a Christian. And anybody that thinks otherwise is kind of looked at strangely. But a true Christian was who Paul came to be. And in his journeys, as we look through the book of Acts, after he came to know Christ as his Savior, or by today's terminology, I guess, in his evangelistic campaigns, <clears throat> in his church follow-up, at this stage of his ministry, took along a partner by the name of Silas. And Silas went along with him on these journeys, and he came to the town of Philippi. And as he was there in Philippi, as he had opportunity to share the gospel, a woman by the name of Lydia also came to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. <clears throat> she came to believe on him. <clears throat> and he moved on from there after that, and he came, and as he ministered, he cast out a demon more recently. And as he cast out this demon from the individual, Paul and Silas, because the local folks, you would think they would be happy. They would be pleased. It's almost like the United States again of America today, I heard recently, and I don't even know which candidate it applies to, to be honest with you. But I heard recently in the news that some people had expressed that they were not interested in such and so candidate, whoever that was, because they are too, quote unquote, religious for them. What a state of affairs. If you were to find out the way the United States of America was founded and the sacrifices, it's a whole new message on itself there. But today, religion, God, Christ, they're being pushed out. Well, that's the way it was here. They were upset rather than rejoicing that this demon had been cast out. As a result, Saul and Pilas, uh, Saul, excuse me, and uh, Paul and Silas are sent to prison. And they are cast into prison and they were beaten badly. You can look at that in verses 23 and 24. It's right there. They're beaten badly, and a soldier is put over them to guide them. And he took it very seriously. His life was in a line. He could not let these people go. And you would think that they would be crying. You would think that they would be upset and complaining about their conditions. We complain with electricity that goes out. Here is someone that's beaten and now in prison. They don't deserve it. And what do we find them doing? Probably worth taking a quick look at, verse 25, leading up to our text. But about midnight, Paul and Silas, rather than complaining, rather than being upset, they're praying and singing hymns of praise to God. What a test for believers. And the prisoners are listening to this. You've got to be kidding me. These people don't deserve this. They're beaten, they're bleeding, they're hurting, and they're praying. 
and they're rejoicing to their God. And then God allows for an earthquake to occur, and you would think that everybody would run out of the prisons. Well, that's exactly what the guard thought, because if you look at verses 26 and 27, in verse 27, the jailer awoke, sees all the doors opened, he drew a sword. Why? Well, if I don't kill myself, it's not even going to be this easy. I'm going to suffer, and then I'm going to be killed because they have escaped. So he's ready to kill himself. That's the context. And Paul simply reassures them, hey, we haven't gone anywhere. We're all here. Verse 28. Soldier now allows his true inner self to come out. He knows that he deserves death because the prisoners could have escaped. He knows that these people are in there, could care less what they're in there for, but he's supposed to guard them. The prisons are open. They don't go. These people have been singing and praying. And here we are with a mighty soldier that's able to humble himself as a soldier. This is rather fascinating. Rushes out, and here is the soldier who's in charge of a prisoner. Verse 29, falls down before Paul. That's a humble man. The facade is gone. His life is on the line. He has seen the hand of God and cannot deny it. And he knows there's something different here. Any other prisoner that I throw in here is not singing. How in the world can they praise God for getting something that they didn't deserve? He's been around long enough in the era to know that these Christians are talking about a Messiah, who's Jesus Christ. And he humbles himself and comes up with this magnificent question in verse 30, bowing down, get this, before a prisoner. He brought them out and he says, sirs. He doesn't say, you scum of the earth. He doesn't say, you prisoners. His whole heart's been changed. And he says to them this marvelous question, what must I do to be saved? We have to first recognize this, that he assumed that he was lost. Nobody asks to be saved who doesn't think they're lost. People don't walk around the street saying, uh, I know where I'm going, but can you help me? Uh, I'm doing just fine, uh, but can you help me? No. Even with GPS, the only time we pull over is, you know, the GPS has got me going in the wrong direction. Can you help me out? I don't know where I'm going. I'm in this town. I don't know what's going on. Or it's the person that's drowning in the ocean. He doesn't turn around and uh, because he's okay, turn around and say, throw something in. Help! He's yelling help because he knows he's about to die. One of the problems that we have in our culture today among humanity is that many people are drowning and they don't know it. This man knew it. My life is on the line. And when he's talking about being saved, he's not talking about being saved from, the, from uh, his boss because he knows they're still there. He's not talking about being saved from taking his life physically because he could have done it and didn't do it because he didn't have to. This man has been brought under the conviction of Almighty God and knows there's something wrong inside. I can be the strongest soldier. 
I can have all of these people. I can put on a facade and I can order people around, but they can't see what's going on inside and I know there's something missing. What must I do to be saved? All mankind is lost. And as I said, many don't realize it. Many think they're okay. Why? Because of religion. One of the testimonies that you heard today got involved in following a man and a cult and so forth. Even got to the point that thought the answers were in Scripture, but hadn't come to know Christ yet, but were following men, but thought they were okay. Then found out it was all empty and brought them into despair. That didn't satisfy. There are churches around the world, all religions included, that are filled with people, including in quote-unquote Christian churches, where people who are attending thinking they're okay because they're going to church. They think they're okay because they've read their Bible. They think they're okay because they did the Stations of the Cross. They think they're okay because their uncles and aunts have been suicide bomber, bombers for their religion. Religious activity gets no one saved. They go to church and they think they're okay. Well, I pray like you pray. And they think prayer is going to get them into heaven. Absolutely not. Well, I believe God exists. Wonderful. So do the demons and they tremble. People think just because I, they name the name of God, I'm okay. I grew up in the right home. My parents were moral. It's okay. I'm moral too. I'm not as bad as the other guy. You know, I didn't go rob that jewelry store last night. I didn't go steal that bus and run it into a building. I'm okay. Really? By whose standards? Yours? Yeah. Does that count? Sure it does. Not in the eyes of God. God knows your inner thoughts. God knows everything that's going on in your heart right in the pew right now. He knows all about you. So you may not think you're as bad as other people, but let me give you God's condition. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Boy, does that affect the do-gooders of today. Man is basically good. Really? By God's standard, man is basically horrible. His thoughts are always murderous, hatred. You see, it's not just the act. You've thought lies. You've thought of adultery. You've thought of murder. You've thought of killing people. You say, well, I haven't done any of that. Oh, yes, you've thought of all kinds of things that are wrong, even though you haven't done them. What does that make you? Guilty. You've come short of the glory of God. This soldier knew it. He knew something was wrong. He knew he had a problem. All men need to know that they are sinners and come short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. But I want you to see this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6 for one moment. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I want you to see this verse. Okay, so I'm a sinner. And by the way, the world doesn't even want to talk about that today, right? Let's not talk about sin. What do you mean my fault? Let's blame someone else. My uncle, my cousin, my environment, whatever. Nobody takes the blame for anything. That includes sporting events, by the way. I get so discouraged with, you know, and for those of you that don't know, I referee. I, I, I do that, and I, I've always enjoyed it and so forth. And you know what? The referee's always the problem. But if he's not the problem, the coach is the problem. The coach isn't the problem. Your other partners, the, no one ever takes the blame for anything. My parents are the problem. My environment's the problem. My kids are the problem. It's not my kids. We are all guilty, plain and simple. We are all sinners and come short of the glory of God. 
Well, that's fine. What's the consequence? Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Watch. For the wages of sin, we know what wages are. There's too many unemployed people today. That's a whole sad issue. But there's a lot of unemployed people. If they know employment, they get a wage. They get a payment. It's what's due to them. What does it say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Stop there. It's death. That is why, you want to know the reason why you have to physically die? You say, because I came into this world. Wrong. You have to physically die because you're a sinner. You have to, you died spiritually already. People don't know it. That is why Adam and Eve got sent out of the Garden of Eden. And they are real people, by the way. They got sent out because as unholy people who violated what God told them not to do, just like the kids, right? One thing you can't do, touch that tree, do anything else you want. Like the kids. Play with all the toys, you can't play with this. First thing they go for is this. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. They got cast out. They could no longer be in the presence of God. How do we restore that? We try religion. We try everything. We try good works. We try all kinds of things to satisfy our own consciousness. Be honest with yourself. You never know whether you've done enough. I'll give you the answer, though. You haven't done enough because you can't do anything. God had to do it himself. And we will face physical death, but the spiritual death is eternal separation from God. How can that be restored? What separates us from God? It's our sin. And that's why you've got this. Turn with me to one other passage for a moment. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. I want you to see this. Some of you are familiar with it. Watch. Verse 1. And you, watch this, you, he's talking to now believers. By the way, who are the saints? The saints are sanctified people, those who have been set apart. You just witnessed the testimony of three of them who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what a real saint is, biblically. Okay? But he says, you were dead. What do you mean? I haven't died yet. You were dead. How were you dead? In your trespasses and sins. That's spiritual death. In which, watch, you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among, watch this, among them we all, he includes himself, Paul. He was the persecutor of Christianity. He says, we all, too, all formerly lived. In what? The lusts of our flesh. We all do that. Indulging in the desires of the flesh. Watch this. And in, of the mind we're by nature, our own nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. That's pretty self-explanatory. Everyone falls in that category before they come to salvation. He said you were like that. You see, because of our sin, we are dead. And right now, in 2011, there are many, many that are alive physically that are walking dead men and women and children. What do we mean by that? They are not in line with God. They are outside of the family of God. They've been created by him, but they do have no relationship with him. They don't have a relationship with him. They're dead spiritually. They don't understand God. They don't know what God wants, and they're trying to appease him. That is what has happened through the centuries. People have bowed down to stones and statues and all kinds of things. That's religion. God doesn't want to offer religion. The condition of man, unless you understand you're lost, that's why I'm spending so much time, you will never see the need to be saved. But you have to see that we are all sinners. We all lust. We all envy. We, that sin, that's going to keep me out of heaven. One sin? Yeah. 
because God is perfectly righteous and holy. But there is good news. That's what the gospel is. Gospel means good news. There is good news. What is it? Here it is. We all know it, right? John 3. John 3, 16. For God, not man, so loved, that's a big word, that's so, the world. Okay? How did he love the world? That he gave, that's a free gift, his only begotten son, that means unique. He gave his unique son. What's so unique about him? Fully God, fully man. Why? Because only God, according to the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah, and actually, if you want to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the only Savior in the world, listen, is God himself. God must save us. No man, no person, no system, no anything can save anyone. God's got to do it himself. He created us. He's got to do it. So he sent his unique son. Who is he? We sing about it at Christmas. Who is he? God in the flesh. That's what Emmanuel means. He's God in the flesh. He took upon flesh. Why? So that he could go to the cross. You were in the book of Ephesians. You're still there. I don't know. Go to chapter 2 if you're not. And if you are, go there as well. That made a lot of sense. Stay with me. I don't get emotional. Only when I'm using the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this. Verse 4 and 5. But God. Look at this. What a picture of God. But God being rich. What is he rich in? In mercy. Why? Because of who he is. Because of his great love. For God so loved. With which he loved us. Watch this. Even when we were what? Dead. Where? In trespasses made us alive. How? Together with Christ. In that dead condition. Listen, I've done too many funerals over my years. I have never, ever preached a message and had the person get out of the casket and walk away. Ever. When they're dead, they don't converse with me. They don't ask me. They don't tell me what they want me to preach on. It doesn't happen. God is the only one that can take a dead person and make them alive. He's the only one that can take someone that is dead physically but also dead spiritually and make them alive. And how did he do that? That's the good news. He did it in the person of Jesus Christ. What did he do? Let me give you a quick glimpse. Go to John chapter 3. You say, I thought we are in the book of Acts. Those of you that come here know how long it takes me to preach through passages. I still am in Acts, believe it or not, verse 30 of our chapter. But in John chapter 3, I want you to see verses 13 and 14. Here's what he did. No one has ascended into heaven. Have you? No. None of us. We haven't gone there. But he who descended from heaven. Well, who would that be? The Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the one he sent, the unique one. Watch, comparison, as Moses lifted up the serpent of the wilderness. You can read about that. Put the serpent on a cross. Even so, comparison, must the Son of Man, what? Be lifted up. Why did he have to be lifted up? He says in the next verse, so that whoever believes in him, watch this, has what? Eternal life. Now go back to Acts chapter 30. Um, chapter 16, sorry, verse 30. When he asks, what must I do to be saved? 
What have I got to do? How do I appropriate that? Here it is. Watch. He said to him, keep the Ten Commandments. Is that what your Bible says in verse 31? He said, be good to your neighbor. He said, listen, be baptized. I don't think so. He said to him, be as good as you can and hope you make it. No. I really like this verse. He says, attend Fellowship Bible Church. That's not what my Bible says. That's why I say I like that verse. It's not there. What does he say? Watch. It's simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That is it, folks. Why? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's why the death on the cross. He paid the penalty and price for death. And it had to be paid by someone who could do it. <clears throat> if you had a mortgage or have a mortgage right now, and you can't go out this afternoon and pay off the entire debt because you don't have the money, but someone had the capability because they had the finances and paid that off for you, you would understand that. I cannot imagine you <clears throat> going to the bank this afternoon <clears throat> or your finance company, and you get there and you say, you know, uh, here's my payment, and they say to you, don't worry, it's all paid for. And you say, I insist. I want to pay the other $100,000 I owe. I have to pay that. No, I think you would say, well, who did it? You're kidding me. Somebody paid, what, did they hit the lottery? What happened? Why is my debt gone? Someone with the capability paid it. The only one who had the capability of paying for sin was God himself. And Jesus Christ paid it. He hung on the cross. That's why when he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. The plan of salvation is done. Now, if he stayed in the grave, no victory. But he rose. He rose from the grave victorious. He has paid the penalty and price for our sin. And it is only appropriated one way. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 20, 31, and you shall be saved. That's what John 3.16 says. That's what John 3.15 says. That's what John 3.18 says. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how it is appropriate. Appropriated. It is a free gift of God, but it is appropriated by belief. Ephesians chapter 2, you were there, but in verses 8 and 9, many of you know it. For by grace you are saved. How does that happen? Through faith, that is believing. You say, oh, there's the catch. This preacher had a catch. I knew what it was. It's faith. Just put. You have faith every day. You had faith in your car and getting here. You have faith in yourself that you think you can make it. You have faith in your church or whatever it is. None of that will ever hold up. You need faith in the one who made it possible for us to have breath, and that is God. And he says that faith is to be found in his son. It's not my efforts. It's not church ordinances. It's not communion. It's not baptism. It's not religion. It's simply belief. How does a person have their sins forgiven? How does a person have eternal life? How does a person die and go into the presence of God for all eternity with assurance? It's by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. End of story. By faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only way, truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by him. If you're trusting in anything else, when you die, you will see the reality of it. I always kid my class, you know, with, with uh, things that I'm talking about. You've got to be careful these days, but I say it to them. If I had a gun in my hand, I pointed at you, and I said, you didn't. And they said, I don't believe it's a gun. All I've got to do is pull the trigger, and you just found out it's true. When you die, 
you will find out the message you are hearing is true. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone will do it. Well then, if baptism doesn't save, what about baptism? Verses 32 and 33. They spoke the word to the Lord, of the, the word of the Lord to him together with all those who are in his house. And by the way, just as a side issue for those of you that theologically are sitting out there, you know, the infants and so forth being baptized, look closely at the passage. They were preached to. They understood the message. There's no indication whatsoever we're dealing with kids here that, that can't comprehend. All right? That's just a little side trip. But the bottom line is what you're getting. He preaches the message to them, and then what had happened? Immediately they were baptized. Baptism is not for salvation. These three candidates did not get saved behind here today. They got baptized as a result of their salvation. They came to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You heard it from every one of them. I asked all three candidates what they were basing their salvation on. And it was all in the substitutionary sacrifice. Why? He died on the cross for their sins. It's after salvation. Baptism is never mentioned for, for salvation in Scripture. Never. Probably the most biblical example I can give you would be Luke 23, and I don't have time, you can look at it on your own, but Luke 23, 39 to 43, most of you would be familiar with it. The thief on the cross. Jesus Christ said, today you will be with me in paradise. That guy physically died on the cross. He did not get down and be baptized. He did not get down and do the Ten Commandments. He didn't get down and pray anything. He never went to church or anything. He simply believed on the one because he knew he's getting what we deserve. He doesn't deserve this. Jesus Christ said, you got it, and today you'll be with me in paradise. He did nothing other than appropriate it by belief. See? It's the same today. It's not belief in a church. It's belief specifically in, listen carefully, Jesus Christ of the scriptures, not of man's own making up a good man, a good teacher. He was all those things. But he's the son of God, God in the flesh, and died on our behalf because only God could pay for it. So then why be baptized? Obedience. Simple. He said, well, if you have believed, then you can be baptized. Show me to Romans chapter 10 for just a second. Romans chapter 10. While you're turning there, let me remind those of you familiar with scripture of something. Just before the Lord Jesus left, the Great Commission, right? Go ye into all the world. What does he do to do? Make disciples. How do you do that? They got to preach the message and baptizing them. It's part of God's command. Not only that they preach the message, but then baptize. Why? Well, this kind of helps a little bit because in Romans chapter 10, and I'm in 1 Corinthians, sorry. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9 says this. Listen. But what does it say? The word is near to you, even to your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. What is it? If, verse 9, you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he goes on and says, for it's in the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, with the mouth confession resulting in salvation. In other words, they go hand in hand. There are no, listen, secret believers. I very much appreciated the testimony today that one of the persons was afraid to get up and say anything publicly. Well, you know what? You better be convinced that you're saved first before you get up and say that you're saved. 
Appreciated that a lot. And what should happen? We should, if there's people here, and I want you to listen carefully. You could be coming to this church for 25 years and be saying you're saved, and you're still afraid to get baptized. You're still afraid to tell others about Christ. You better ask yourself whether you're saved. Baptism is just an outward expression, according to Romans chapter 6, which I don't have the time to get into. It shows us that we were buried with him in baptism, and we now live for Christ. That's what a public testimony was. Oh, they didn't have church services like this at the time of John the Baptist. It was worse. They were in public, and everyone that knew them, they were standing and saying, I believe in this, and I will give my life. And they did. And they were cast out. Don't tell me there was no public professions. Baptism follows. It demonstrates. I will say this to you for time's sake. Every true believer should be baptized by water. Not for, for salvation, because of salvation. To show us that it's really evidence. It's the first act of obedience. It's the first act of obedience that should be there. Let me just give you a couple of practical things that I think are important before we conclude today, and I'll come back to it. So you say, well, then every believer should be baptized. Even The, the only hesitation should, that should be there is if you have a parent because the parent wants to be sure. Unfortunately, most of the time, parents are actually pushing to get their kids baptized when they don't want to be baptized. Parents, stop doing it. If they're saved, let them tell you they're saved. Let them show you they're saved, and let them want to be baptized. Or... If the church leaders aren't sure of the salvation, why? Because again, with responsibility, the way things are today. We're not living in a society, when you make a profession of faith, you go out the doors and you're gonna be shot, for the most part, not over here in the United States. But if you are a born again believer, you've trusted in Christ, you should be baptized. Now, let me just answer a couple of questions and then I'll come back to the salvation issue again. Who can baptize? Well, <laughs> gotta be Pastor Dan to do that. Really? Can only, listen carefully, clergy baptize? Can only elders baptize? No. Who has the right to baptize? Any, listen carefully, any true believer. Any true believer could do it. Let me give you some examples. Paul did it. Apollos did it. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8 for one second. I'm not that far away, so go to Acts chapter 8. And that's why I said even as believers, we could be challenged because we get into traditions, we get into our own way of thinking, and we think the only one that can baptize is a pastor. It's not true. Acts chapter 8, look at verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to be stopped, and they both went down into the water. Who? Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip baptized him. That's just a sample to show you. You see? It doesn't have to be some clergy that does it. Now, so let's establish that. Anyone really can baptize by water. Let me ask you another question. Is it wrong for a church to have standards where only elders baptize? No. That's not wrong. Some people think it's unbiblical. Show me that one. It's not. It's also okay for any believer to baptize. It's also okay for the church or a pastor to do it. That's not wrong either. John the Baptist did it. The apostles did it. 
They did it as leaders. And in the early church, they were concerned. Philip was off on a trail. That's other. That's fine. There are legitimate considerations, though, that we need to have today. So first of all, any born-again believer should be baptized. Who has to do it? Well, no one has to do it, and any true believer can do it. But we have to recognize that we're in a society that does have church structure to it as far as, like, Fellowship Bible Church or John Doe Baptist Church or whatever. And there's no John Doe Baptist Church. You see what I'm getting at. That's just a practical consideration. And it's not wrong, nor is it unbiblical, to have the church leadership. Why? Because the church leadership has been given the responsibility for shepherding the flock. They've been given the responsibility, according to Peter, according to Timothy, and other such passages, Titus, to shepherd the flock among them and to have the oversight. We know in the pastoral epistles, and we also know in the book of Hebrews, that the congregation is basically to submit to the leadership. Why? Because they've been given authority over you. That's why. Why? Because they watch for your souls. I'll be honest with you. I believe it's true of every true church that elders are usually the shot and the point of criticism and critiquing rather than supporting and submitting. That's the truth. I praise the God of God for this congregation and for the support that there is. But that's not the norm. The norm is to sit in the pew and be a critique and criticize everything that you think is wrong. That's the norm. But God's put him in there for leadership. God established local churches. That's why you've got your New Testament epistles, and he's given instruction on how to do it. So why, then, uh, would you even consider the fact of having leadership do it? Well, again, because leadership has the oversight, because God's established officers in the church. And also, go with me to this passage, to God against this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 13, very quickly. In verse 10 it says, Now I exhort, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. And here's the tendency of even believers. I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, and then the real spiritual ones, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided, etc., etc.? The issue, by the way, don't just look at the baptism. A lot of people forget verse 13. Paul was not crucified for you. The whole center is to get back on Christ. And the concern of Paul here in this epistle was divisions. And to help avoid that, sometimes leadership comes up with policies so that there aren't divisions and followings after this one and that one. I want to be frank with you. What's the tradition of Fellowship Bible Church? Basically that the pastor has done the baptizing. That's been our tradition. Does it have to be? No, that's been our practice, that the pastor or the assistant pastor. Elders could also do it as well in our church. Now, that hasn't been done too often. But let me remind you of something that you came to as a congregation that's probably been forgotten. Maybe some of the elders have forgotten, or all of us have forgotten, that in our Constitution, according to Article 8, Section 1, page 16, 4I, how's that? Because I looked it up. 
The elders are responsible for the administration of the church ordinances. That's our own constitution. So what you will probably need to realize is anyone can baptize, but it's simply just because of oversight. So there's nothing wrong with other people baptizing, but our function as a church is to have an elder do the baptizing. We have chosen as elders to leave it with the elders so that we don't have the potential of divisions, just so you know about that. Okay? That's just a practical aspect of it. And in the future, it'll be left with the elders. But just, I don't want the congregation to be shocked if I'm not in there, I'm preaching and someone else is baptizing, but they're an elder. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay. But we will not entertain for the congregation to be saying, I want this elder, I want that elder. Why? That has the possibility of causing divisions. And we don't want that. Our center of attention isn't Pastor Dan. It's not the elders. It's not clergy laity. It's not the elders themselves. It's Christ. And that's what we wanted to say. Stay. So in the future, you may see other elders, but let's avoid factions and let's avoid divisions because that's the ultimate goal. That's a practical aspect. But let's come back to the closing with this. Baptism didn't save anyone. And that was a confusion. Among religion, the concept is baptism has something to do with me getting into heaven. I was baptized when I was an infant. I'm just telling you a practical example. When I was an infant, I don't remember anything. I don't. I'm assuming that when the water was poured over my head because it was cold, I cried. I probably did. I knew nothing about that. And why was that done for me? Because the concept was that would get me into heaven. It would get me out of what was known as purgatory. Let me just say this. There is no purgatory. There's heaven and there's hell. They're both real places. And the only way you avoid hell, and that's not the best way to put it, but is by trusting in Christ. And that is just like this soldier humbly bowing yourself. Here he was be be before prisoners. I need salvation. How do I get that? He didn't say, come on out and I'll baptize you. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. If you missed everything else in this message, don't miss that. Every one of these candidates had trusted in Christ first, and we had the practical aspect of interviews and baptism class for one reason. As part of the responsibility of the elders' oversight to have some type of assurance. We can't play the role of God, but some type of assurance that it's a genuine profession, that it's seen real in the life. And then we gladly encourage them to get baptized. And we're excited and rejoicing with you. But let's not get caught up in even who does it or whatever. And think back to the concept of clergy and laity. But there is also the idea of doing things decently in an order in a church. And so there's nothing wrong with policy either. And so that is our policy here, that an elder would do it in the future. If you're here without Christ, there's no other place to look. You won't make it on your own. No church can give it to you. The only one that can is Christ. What's his appeal? Come unto me, all ye labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Where's that rest going to be found? Where it counts. In your soul. I've been to too many hospitals by the side of too many people dying. They were frightened. 
They didn't know if they had done enough. They were hoping they would be saved. Listen to me. This is the most important thing you're going to hear. You can have the assurance right there in the pew right now because it's not based upon a feeling. It's based upon the authority of the Word of God, the one who created us in his own image and likeness. He says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I sent my only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but listen carefully, shall have it right now, everlasting life. I stand before you as a pastor, not assured that I'm going to heaven because I'm a pastor, not assured of heaven because I've led the right type of life, or had the best family, and we all believe we have, our, have the best families, etc., or attended the right church. I stand before you as a person that was a lost sinner, that by God's grace he opened up my understanding to see that salvation is found only in the person of Jesus Christ, and I have the assurance that when I die, I'll be in heaven on the authority of God. And you can have that same authority. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, we rejoice once again with these candidates. How exciting for them it is. Not only to have trusted in Christ, but then to publicly told others that they're living for him. All three of them sensed the need for obedience to your word. And Father, we know that that takes strength from the inner man. We thank you and praise you that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were lost at enmity with God, yet Christ paid the penalty and price for our sin. And just as with the thief on the cross, just as with these three candidates today, your appeal is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one that can provide salvation and have forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Sounds too easy to man, but yet it's so hard to believe because people are lost in sin. But I pray this morning if there be one soul in this room that does not trust it in Jesus Christ, Father, you know their inward thinking. They could go to bed tonight and die in their sleep. I pray that you'd help them to see that they don't want to do that unless they have the full assurance that they know that they have salvation. Open up their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Might they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right there in the pew. And might they then confess with their mouth that they've come to Christ, that we might see the evidence of true salvation. For every believer that's here today, help us to rejoice in seeing people come to Christ. Help us encourage others who have professed Christ and have not yet been baptized to encourage them to be baptized, for they should be. Help us also to not get caught up in even with baptism, the concept of clergy, laity, traditions, whatever, but help us, Father, also to be submissive to leadership, to understand that you've given some structure in the New Testament so that the church can function decently and in order. 
And I pray that, Father, we would never become a church that follows after this one or that one, this teacher, that teacher, this person, that person, but that our minds and hearts would be so centered on the Lord Jesus Christ and seeking first the kingdom of God and your righteousness that we would follow after the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you for this time together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.